Welcome, Dr. James Beckett, Sports Card Insights, another listener question episode. Enjoying these. Keep your questions coming. But thanks, sponsors, Beckett Media, Beckett Grading, Beckett Authentication, CompC.com, Burbank Sports Cards, Mike Stadium Sports Cards, Heritage Auctions, Hugs and Scott Auctions, and Panini, Upper Deck, and Tops. I don't know how many I'm going to get through, but I'll, I'll give you almost 15 minutes worth. First from Brian, my military friend I met at the National. He was helping me understand some options for my son-in-law, who is in the Army and is a great guy, but I don't think he's going to be career. And so Brian had some very helpful stuff there. Military is recommended. As I was a, a lieutenant in the Army, and so I thank you, Brian, for your service. First question from Brian talked about all the lawsuits in the hobby and he says, how do hobby books or magazines or auction catalogs get to use the trading card images without seemingly getting permission or approval from the card manufacturer or the photographers or the players for that matter? Is there an industry exception of some sort regarding copyright infringement? It's sometimes called fair use doctrine. Basically, newspapers are allowed to show pictures of uh, what they're describing. So when it's primarily an editorial product, you don't need permission. You're, in effect, promoting. Uh, or if you're parodying, you know, so you, the, the problem is you get sued if you do a commercial reproduction of the thing <laughs> to give a picture of it, to describe it, to talk about it. You're promoting the product. And in many cases, it is your card. So you're allowed to take a picture of your card. But if you start reproducing artwork or cards without a license, you could get in trouble. But thanks for that opportunity for clarification, Brian. His second question was about the national. Brian's only been to Atlantic City and Chicago, and he likes both of them for the lodging options, let's say. And the, the centrality of Conference Center. In fact, Chicago is unsurpassed. Atlantic City, a little trickier, but actually Cleveland is even more spread out. It, it really is. Uh, and it's not like Atlantic City where you're going to walk a few blocks. And there were some concerns about walking after dark in parts of Atlantic City, but you wouldn't walk in Cleveland. It, most of the hotels are, are a mile away. It's very spread out. The restaurants are farther away. But they're very good restaurants in Cleveland. In fact, the guys I know that are the, the foodies, there's a, a lot of ethnic great food in Cleveland. So that's one of the positives. And every hotel chain, it seems, if you've got any points going with any of them, within one or two miles of the show, of the uh, IX Center, there's almost every chain that you, you could imagine. Uh, this is an opportunity for me, I don't think I've done this, to put in a plug for the uh, the conference housing group that is used by the national. It's what you're referred to if you go to the website and they've just done a terrific job for me. So I highly recommend they're getting me uh, the best rate and they know which ones are closer and which ones provide good service. I just want a nice clean room and I don't want to be way far away. On the other hand, pretty much, Brian, every one of these hotels, I think, has a shuttle. And if they don't, there's a shuttle route that will take you to the show on the hour, on the half hour there. So I, I think you'll enjoy Cleveland and there's no primary hotel. I don't think they're all uh, within a mile, but it, you're, you're not going to walk it. Uh, renting a car. I don't even know that you want to rent a car. Although some people do, if you had a group, then your third question was talking about collecting baseball cards in my youth. And well, he said, I mentioned non-sport cards recently. And he wants to know if I collected any non-sport cards. I don't know that I would say I collected them when I was a kid. That's in the 50s now. And later on, I've accumulated some, but I don't really try to hold on to them. I, I got my hands full, uh, all the price guides I did, but they really were all sports. I'm a sports card insight. So uh, if I get non-sports sets, 
or cards, I pass them on. But uh, dad, uh, my dad probably had a few Indian gum cards, maybe less than 10 of, of non-sport. He had mainly the bait. My dad was a baseball player. He mainly had Gowdy's, some play balls, some stuff like that. But uh, there were other cool things in the 30s and 40s that were uh, non-sport. But in the 50s, so for me, uh, the TV Westerns, I had them. Kids in my neighborhood liked it. We watched a lot of those shows on TV. The top space cards, and they're listed as 57s, but I'm convinced they came out more than one year. There's no year listed on the back. They're very futuristic, very cartoonish. In my lifetime, a lot of that stuff has happened. So they're listed as 57. I seem to recall in 58 or 59, friends buying packs. I'm not sure I would ever, if I had a nickel, I wasn't going to spend it on space cards. I wasn't going to spend it even on Zorro, even though I like Zorro. The Zorro cards were good. And Elvis cards and the Davy Crockett, I, the, some of the older kids had them. That's a little bit ahead of me, not way ahead of me. So there were some of those there, but I didn't hold it. And then my brother's age would be the Beatles and the Batman cards that I've seen them. I like them, but like I said, I have my hands full, Brian, with uh, with baseball. So I don't criticize anybody, especially those older. The, the artwork is interesting. Again, each one of those, the TV Westerns, they, they were superstars. <laughs> have Gun Will Travel. Elvis was a superstar. Davy Crockett was a superstar. The Beatles were four superstars, at least. Batman was one and a half superstars. Maybe they're probably some superstar villains. So all of that made a lot of sense. It was a lot of fun. Okay, next one from Dave O, talking about uh, it's remarkable to him, and me too, how far behind vintage football is to the rest of the sports in terms of, he says in terms of value for high grade, but it's in terms of value for any grade. Uh, there's no question they printed more baseball cards than football cards, than basketball cards in that order every time in the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, probably into the 2000s. But each decade, it got a little closer. But if you go back in the 50s, there's a lot more baseball cards than football. And so you would think by scarcity, again, if, if demand ever flips, if demand was equal for vintage football compared to vintage baseball and same thing with basketball, and it has increased, you could see a real run on the cards. And like I say, on the baseball cards, we've seen that as the the high grade has gotten stratospheric pricing. And so a lot of people are going for fours and fives and sixes of some of the cards in the 50s and the 60s. A tremendous bargain, still at arm's length, a a very nice looking card in many cases. Football, you're going to be able to buy multiple football iconic players. He mentions Greasy, Butkus, Zonka. I guess those are mainly guys, late 60s, 70s. But every era of football and basketball too, they're generally seem like a bargain. And they may seem like such a bargain that they're no longer a bargain if the price goes up. Uh, Dave O also commented about in when one of the times I was talking about where the national could be and how Atlanta, I think, had some issues. They have a big airport, but he points out that he thinks that Atlanta airport is a mess. And it can be sometimes. And he said the TSA line is no good. Again, I didn't want to say that, but FW, the Dallas airport is where I uh, do a lot of my uh, traveling to and from. And that's not great to change planes in, but when as a destination or taking off point, it's good. But Atlanta is perhaps problematic there. But again, if they have a great show, if some of the shows they're doing continue to uh, increase, then they're going to be in the picture. Okay, John Keating, that 70s card show, was commenting on the Mike Kramer episodes, and he mentioned... His love-hate relationship with Crown Royale die cuts. He loved the cards, but the flip side, the bad side, is trying to get them into penny sleeves. Try getting some of the other Pacific and other more complicated die cuts. The Crown Royales, at least most of them are squared off corners at the bottom where you can slide them in. The ones I find difficult are when they're die cut on both sides, not just on top, and getting them in or out 
you've got a problem. Or if they're die cut at the bottom, and then I'm thinking, do I want to put the card in upside down when they're being graded by BGS? I don't really remember having a discussion about this with the guys when we were starting BGS, but is that edges? Is that corners? Can you only have four corners? Or can you have about 20 corners? Some of these die cut things that Mike Kramer masterminded. But still, it adds interest. And like I said, if all the cards were the same condition coming out of the pack or as they aged, the hobby wouldn't be as much fun. So don't think we want to get quality control to have everything be perfectly initially a 10 and always a 10. It's interesting to have different price points based on the condition. And cards can come out of the pack. You can say pack fresh, but that doesn't mean mint. Another question from John Keating about my outtakes with Leighton Sheldon about buying collections. And I think he's agreeing with me, <laughs> but he says $5,000 was a lot of money back then uh, for several reasons, certainly. And his point that the market for resale in the 70s is much more difficult to navigate. The hobby was much smaller, communication much more difficult. He's, he's saying it might be easier to spend $20,000 on a collection these days compared to 5,000 back in the day. As I'm going back over my life, I don't think I've ever spent more than $10,000 on a collection. And I've bought some fabulous collections. And again, I wasn't in a bidding war. The person either gave me their price or I gave their price. And again, things went for a lot less in those days. But it's not even fair to compare the margins today. When you have less liquidity as we had in the old days, when you didn't know how long it would take to sell, or even if you could sell, you've got to have higher margins. Whereas now you can do a little bit lower margin if you know that you can instantly sell something digitally, put it up and you can sell it halfway across the world. If they're graded for sure, getting them graded wasn't even an option back in the 70s. So thanks, John, for your stimulating questions. Got one from Golden Slumber that coming to the Toronto Sports Card Expo. I did not make it this November. He mentioned that he would bring a dozen Krispy Kreme donuts. So people are remembering that, okay? I would never bring Krispy Kreme donuts in Canada. You would do Tim Hortons. People say it's 90% hockey. When I went, it, it really wasn't. And they don't make a big deal about it. And maybe it's changed, but I know it's mainly hockey. But there was a lot of baseball there, a lot of Canadian baseball and interesting baseball. And there was a lot of non-sport there. There were not necessarily memorabilia, but just other stuff. There were collectors that brought a variety of stuff that wasn't in price guides. That's why I went up there. So I'm good for going up there, Golden Slumber, one more time probably. I really want to go. I don't think I'm coming to the end of the line <laughs> anyway, other than I'm picking my spots. And I do want to go to Toronto one more time. And if I do go, I need to promise that I will let everybody know that I'm going because I'm really going to be going mainly to see the people. I can't buy as much when I'm in Canada. I had the benefit when I was a publisher that I, I got a break when I was coming across for customs. If you're getting publisher samples, which I really was, it wasn't a lie. Most of the cards that I bought, again, wasn't spending huge bucks, but I'd buy sample cards, type cards of the sets, and then we'd photograph them and put them in the almanacs and the uh, hockey uh, card price guides. So that was a lot of fun. But now I'm just a regular guy. If I'm going across the board and say, what do you got in your suitcase? Are you declaring anything? I said, I bought some cards. I, I can't say they're for business use other than if, if I'm going to sell them and I'm in business, then I, I would need to pay some duty, I think. Then one more from Golden Slumber. He mentioned he enjoyed the Dick Butkus uh, tribute. He said that he was a, a Packer fan. And so he really appreciated Ray Nitschke, a little bit older than Dick Butkus, but still the intensity and 
He's another midway monster, if not a midway monster, a Packer monster. And he was hated down here in Dallas, Nitschke especially. And the Lions had Alex Karras, who was fearsome as well and a character. And he said Butkus stood out more than the other three. And some of the Miller Light commercials helped that along. But let me just bring up Leroy Jordan, who was probably uh, slightly older than Butkus, uh, similar to Nitschke perhaps. But what a switch. No one accused Leroy Jordan of being a monster. Now he was intense, but I, I spent an afternoon with him uh, one time and he, he just was a gentleman. <laughs> he was a character guy. He's the kind of guy that coach Tom Landry would have liked, but he was also all pro. So there's different ways to be an effective uh, middle linebacker as Leroy has proved. And you don't have to have the x-ray eyes like Mike Singletary had or the brutality of Butkus and Nitschke. Anyway, thanks, everybody. Another group of questions. I'll do some more when I get some more. And I really appreciate the, the feedback. I'm still having a lot of fun. And so see you again, again in a couple of days. Bye-bye. The man-